Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Colson. In this episode, we discuss how competition between the United States and China on Earth has extended into outer space. In late October, during his address at the Chinese Communist Party's 19th Party Congress, General Secretary Xi Jinping made it clear that China is moving to center stage globally and stands poised to make greater contributions to mankind. One area where China aims to elevate its military and commercial standing is through the expansion of its space program. Meanwhile, after decades of leading in space, the United States now faces a complex environment grappling with the security implications of a new era in capabilities, particularly greater diffusion of space technologies and counters to long-standing U.S. advantages. To discuss the changing situation in space as it relates to security on Earth, the competition between the United States and China in space capabilities, and the role of other countries in the Indo-Pacific in space exploration and commercial applications, we turn to several experts. Joining us are Todd Harrison, Director of the Aerospace Project at the CSIS International Security Program, and Dr. Zach Cooper, Senior Fellow for Asian Security at CSIS. Zach and Todd are co-authors of a recent report titled Escalation and Deterrence in the Second Space Age, which explores these issues in depth. Also joining us for the podcast is Dr. Brian Whedon of the Secure World Foundation, an expert on the military and commercial aspects of U.S. and Chinese space programs, as well as the broader security challenges in space. I'll turn it over to Jeffrey Bean, editor of the CSIS Asia Policy blog, Kajit Asia, who sat down with Todd, Zach, and Brian. Good day. My name is Jeffrey Bean. I'm editor of the CSIS Asia Policy blog, Kajit Asia, and producer of this podcast. Uh, the topic for our conversation today is the changes in the strategic domain of outer space and China-U.S. competition in space, uh, with a big focus on China's space program and implications. Joining us today are Todd Harrison, uh, director of the Aerospace Security Project at CSIS within our uh, international security program. Todd, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also, uh, welcome back to the pod, Dr. Zach Cooper with our uh, Asian Security Division of the Asia Program. Dr. Brian Wheaton, thank you for coming over from the Secure World Foundation. Yep, my pleasure to be here. Awesome, thank you. Now, I want to set the scene for this issue with a bit of context before we dive into the specifics of China's space program and recent developments. And for that, I guess I'll turn to you, Todd. Most of us are familiar with the space race uh, between the United States and Soviet Union from the early 1950s to at least 1969 during the Cold War. Yet we live in a very different world uh, today. Todd, how has the space domain changed since the end of the Cold War? Sure. Well, so during the Cold War, it was primarily a competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. And if you look at the the statistics and the number of satellites launched, the number of launches uh, to space, uh, it was entirely dominated uh, by the U.S. and Soviet Union. Very little activity with other countries. Um, Since the end of the Cold War, and really I think the dividing line is 1991 uh, when the Soviet Union crumbled, Uh, and when the U.S. military uh, rolled into Iraq in the the first Gulf War, uh, there's been a remarkable change uh, in the space domain. So one, the military has become much more dependent on space. Uh, It used to just, in the Cold War, space was primarily used for strategic conflict. uh, And our assets in space were vulnerable, but they were protected by the cloak of nuclear deterrence. So as long as nuclear deterrence held on the Earth, our assets in space uh, were safe. But in 1991, uh, we showed the world 
that we could use space uh, to great advantage in conventional conflict. And it's only expanded uh, since then. And our military has become more, more and more dependent on space-based capabilities for across the full spectrum of conflict. So that's opened up a new vulnerability uh, for the U.S. military. Uh, but uh, – uh, in the space domain itself, uh, since 1991, we've seen it, but it's become much more diverse. Many more countries uh, are active in space, uh, and we see now that you know the majority of launches uh, and the majority of satellites are coming from countries other than the United States and Russia. Particularly, uh, we see a lot of space activity from China, India, and Japan, uh, and of course, the European countries uh, are, are in the mix as well. Um, we also have seen uh, spaces becoming more disruptive. There are a lot of new companies that are getting into the space market, companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin, uh, Virgin. All the billionaires uh, have their, their new uh, space startup companies, and they are being a disruptive force and are pushing new technologies uh, and new ideas and new missions uh, new commercial space missions that have never been tried before. Things like on-orbit servicing, um, uh, you know, things like signals intelligence, uh, commercial companies doing SIGINT from space, high-resolution uh, imagery from commercial companies. So we see an explosion uh, in a lot of these commercial areas. So it's getting much more disruptive. Um, and then what we also see uh, is that uh, while it's getting more disruptive uh, and all these new participants in space, it's getting more disordered as well because all of the treaties, uh, the laws, the regulations that have governed space since 1957, um, for the most part, they weren't really designed for our, this many new participants uh, and all of these new commercial missions that we see popping up now. Uh, and so we're playing catch up in the policy world and trying to figure out how do we create some order uh, in this new domain with so many new participants and so many commercial participants in particular. And then related to that, we see that the space domain is getting more dangerous because there are so many more people. Uh, we are so much more dependent on space for our military and for our commercial economy here in the U.S. and many other countries are, are dependent on it as well. Um, that makes it a, that makes space assets a juicy target uh, that people will want to attack. And you know the, we're seeing a proliferation of counter space capabilities. And you know a lot of people when they think counter space, they're thinking you know like a direct ascent ASAT missile you can launch, it goes up, boom, a satellite explodes. That's certainly a threat. Uh, we do see uh, countries like Russia and China kind of perfecting those technologies. But I think a more worrisome threat is we're seeing a proliferation of things like jamming equipment that can uh, interfere with the signals going to and from a satellite, uh, lasers that can dazzle or blind a satellite. Uh, and then, of course, cyber threats. If you can get into the ground station or if you can get into the command and control link of a satellite itself, uh, you could disrupt it or even destroy it. So we see a wide range of threats. It's proliferating around the world. And that's what's making the, the space domain much more complicated today. Great. Thanks, Todd. Yeah, I'd encourage listeners, if you're interested in greater detail on each of the four threats you described, uh, your new report, uh, Zach and Todd, uh, features an in-depth analysis of all of those issues. Zach, I want to turn to you now and discuss what impact the changes Todd has described in the environment. Uh, what impact have they had on deterrence and escalation dynamics, which were classically tied to nuclear issues? 
Well, I think the question of nuclear issues is a, is a good one to start with because in many ways, the deterrence dynamics in space have often been similar to those uh, in the nuclear world because we've been able to have a bipolar uh, world that is the U.S. and the Soviet Union with the bulk of the capabilities. And that was certainly the case for most of the Cold War. But increasingly, those capabilities are proliferating around the world. And they're actually becoming much more complex, as Todd mentioned. So it's not just the direct descent satellite weapons, but it's also these other measures, whether they're using electronic or cyber means. Uh, and so the challenges for deterrence in space are much more complex now than they were uh, for most of the early uh, space era. And this challenge has been similar in the nuclear domain and other domains, and usually the response is to attempt to tailor deterrence. Uh, that is to focus one's deterrent efforts more on exactly the kind of activities that one wants to stop on the part of an adversary. And that, I think, is what we will end up seeing in the space domain as well. But the real challenge in doing so is that you have to have much more carefully targeted uh, threats against your adversary in case uh, to make sure that they do not escalate. And you have to have much more carefully targeted capabilities as well. So that's really what we are focused on when we talk about deterrence. It's the capability and the intent to use those capabilities to convince an adversary not to take an action. And in, uh, in looking at the new uh, space era, what we call the second space age, we focused on five areas. There are attribution, reversibility, resilience, thresholds, and asymmetries. And our real focus in each one was to explain how the change from the first space age to the second space age has impacted each one of those areas. And without going into detail on, on each one of the five, I would just say that the this changes are similar across the board. And they are that where, say, attribution was fairly simple in the first space age. If you were the United States and one of your satellites was interfered with, uh, you were pretty sure that it was probably the Soviet Union. And furthermore, you were pretty sure that the action was unlikely to be reversible uh, and that it was probably a prelude to a nuclear attack. And so deterrence was pretty simple. Uh, you could threaten massive retaliation against that type of attack. But increasingly, we must have much more tailored responses. We must be able to attribute who the attack came from. We must determine whether it's a reversible attack or a non-reversible attack. We must examine whether the US has resiliency in that system or whether it's highly vulnerable with regard to that system. And something that Brian has done a lot of work on is we must understand the thresholds that uh, hold in space. So uh, when might the US escalate? When would other parties escalate? And under what conditions? Those are some of the real challenges in the second space age that people are just starting to grapple with. I want to turn to, to each of you. Maybe we could start with you, Brian. But uh, I, I know each of you have argued in, in different forms that China's successful anti-satellite test in 2007 reignited the consideration of threats to space systems and underscored the idea of, of space as a contested domain. So this sort of reinforces what you were discussing earlier, Todd. How has this played out specifically in relation to China's programs, and, and what are the key implications? Uh, how does the acute vulnerability of satellites, which are so important uh, for our communications and for our military personnel, factor into this issue? I mean, I, I think the, the 2007 ASAT test, it was certainly the most public event and the one that gets the most recognition 
but I don't think it by itself started a new trend. I think it was indicative of a trend that had been going on, and it was kind of the the, the public acknowledgement of that trend. Um, you know, their ASAT program, they started testing that system a couple years beforehand. It just was not publicly acknowledged. Uh, I think where the wake-up call was really significant was in the United States, where there had been this perception that with the end of the Cold War and the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, there wasn't going to be a significant threat to the U.S., particularly in space. And, and so there was this sort of perception that, well, we're going to be a superpower and dominant in space forever. Uh, and then that 2008 ASAT test served as this wake-up call that suddenly brought back the reality that, no, there are threats and, and more of a return to having the military having to think about how does the U.S. military work in a contested environment. Um, some people say this as well. Space is no longer sanctuary. It never kind of really was other than our, in our minds. So in some ways, we're having to relearn some of the, the, the things we had to do during the Cold War to figure out how do we use space in a conflict? What do we do when those assets are threatened? How do we deal with it from a defensive perspective? How do we deal with assets, space that might go away, capabilities might be, might be challenged? Uh, all that is sort of being relearned and having to work into our plans. Um, and as Todd pointed out, it's much more, and Zach as well, it's much more complicated than nowadays because we're so much more reliant on space there's you know, not a thing that the U.S. does from a military standpoint that doesn't involve space in some way. So it's, it's an even harder problem to solve than it was before. Yeah, I, I would just add, I think the 2007 ASAT test, it kind of caught us flat-footed. And, and it shouldn't have, but it did. And we had been lulled into this sense that space was a totally benign environment. It was fine and we could just dominate it and use it for our military uh, with impunity. Uh, and then all of a sudden there was this very public test uh, that re, you know reminded everyone, like, wait a second, it, it's not actually all that benign. It's never been benign. You know, the United States launched the first ASAT test in 1959, two years after Sputnik. <laughs> so you know, we were the ones uh, you know who started uh, using ASAT testing ASAT weapons, and we continued all the way through 1985 on our last kinetic ASAT test in space. Um, we had just forgotten that. This this domain was vulnerable to attack in this way. Um, and the problem is that since 2007, while it, it was a wake-up call, we woke up, we haven't really been doing much different uh, since then. So you know, the vulnerability we recognize uh, is that we rely on a – for many types of space capabilities, we rely on a very small number of expensive satellites – uh, that we build, you know, a decade or two at a time. <laughs> uh, we take very long times. Uh, and if if someone disables or destroys even just one or two of those satellites, it will have a major impact on our overall capabilities. We haven't moved away from those architectures since 2007. We have talked about it. We've, you know, talked about resilience and all the things we need to do, but we haven't actually started moving. And we don't see the the military you know, changing space architectures, um, you know, in a major way in response to that. Not yet. Well, and to follow on to that, I think a big part of that is cultural. You have the, the, the way that the military space world is currently organized. There's sort of a preference for building uh, large infrastructure to support these capabilities. Uh, and, and, you know, the efforts to go to a new model where there's more distributed constellations or 
smaller efforts that are more diversified, there's a lot of institutional resistance to that. And that's a big part of the reason why there's been some struggle the last several years to actually move in this different direction to address a lot of these challenges. It's a follow-on. What what type of capabilities are we talking about for the U.S. military? Obviously, everybody knows about GPS, global positioning system, reliant heavily on satellites, but other systems. What types of systems, uh, for example, uh, is the Chinese military developing that are dependent on these space capabilities? Well, yeah. I mean, China doesn't have to be as dependent on space uh, because, for the most part, China plays you know kind of in its near periphery. Um, it's the United States uh, that really needs space because our strategy calls on us to be able to project power and play an away game uh, all over the world, from Europe to the Middle East to the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, I mean, in, in our military, it's not just GPS uh, that we're relying on. It's you know satellite communications of various types, uh, in particular protected satellite communications. It's more resistant to jamming. Um, missile warning. Uh, we want to be able to say, you know, see who is launching what from virtually anywhere in the world, uh, because we have so many different regions that we're concerned with. Um, you know, and then of course there's imagery, signals, intelligence, all the different missions uh, that we rely on for space. Because if you want to be able to to see far, uh, project power uh, over distance, there's really no substitute for space. I do think uh, one challenge for the Chinese moving forward, however, is that as China attempts to project power at greater distances, it's going to face some of the same challenges that the United States is dealing with today. It's reliance on communications, uh, on imagery, et cetera, et cetera. And those are going to require China to develop a more substantial military space program. One of the challenges that is unique to China, which I think presents a bit of a vulnerability, is that the United States, when it projects power, it tends to put large numbers of forces overseas, whether it's uh, large numbers of ground troops, uh, air wings, or carrier strike groups. And that really means that we're transporting people, and those people have to communicate back. You know, the Chinese have a different problem, which is when they want to project power at a distance, one way that they do so is using conventionally armed ballistic missiles, for example. Well, it's easy when the ballistic missile is on your territory to tell it when to launch, but it's very hard to tell it where to launch uh, against. And if you're talking about fixed targets, that's, that's easier. Of course, you still need precision navigation and timing. Uh, but if you're talking about moving targets that are, say, thousands of kilometers away, uh, that's a very tough challenge to solve without having access to systems in space. And so I think the Chinese, they may not have exactly the same kinds of challenges as the United States does, but they are going to encounter some of the same limitations that Washington has. And, and to kind of fill in and connect that, um, at the moment, yes, the U.S. is much more reliant on space, but China is developing a full suite of its own space capabilities. Uh, civil space is working on a significant human spaceflight program, uh, and in national security space, it is on a path to develop many of the same capabilities the U.S. has with PNT, with SATCOM, with uh, surveillance reconnaissance, not always in exactly the same way and not always exactly the same degree of reliance, but they they definitely see that as the future and are working on that. So as China fleshes out and, and develops its own space capabilities, that disparity is going to change between the two. Um, and that will have an effect on the dynamics going forward and will change the deterrence equation to one where it's no longer, you know, China can just 
have an asymmetric advantage and, and, and disrupt U.S. space and not worry about its own, it's going to have to think about that impact on its own space, use of space. Um, that may not be here yet for another five, ten years, maybe a little bit longer, so that's more of a future trend, uh, but that's coming. And so that, that adds another variable into the deterrence equation. And one thing we've seen China do as well is they've reorganized their military and they've broken out their space forces uh, into a separate force uh, within its military. And then that actually has been part of what spurred a debate in the United States about whether or not the United States should break out uh, its space forces into a separate force. Uh, of course, part of that, uh, part of the debate in the U.S. was just you know, a reflection of, okay, an unhappiness with how the Air Force in particular has dealt with the change in the space environment in the, over the past 10 years since the Chinese ASAT test, uh, but then also looking abroad and saying, hey, look at what Russia is doing, look at what China, China is doing. They seem to be organizing themselves to put more emphasis and more uh, institutional power within their space forces. Uh, and that leads us to wonder maybe we should be doing the same thing. And what, as soon as the counterpoint to that is, yes, I agree. The U.S. office is, is now saying, oh, look what they're doing. But when you talk to the Russians and the Chinese, they're like, well, you guys have had a separate Air Force Space Command for decades now and have always had much bigger focus on space than we have. So we're just reacting to you. So it, it, it's an interesting dimension where, you know, who's actually reacting to whom. And uh, it's hard to tell sometimes. <laughs> Talked a lot about in an in-depth way the the military implications of this specifically relate to the U.S. and and to China. Uh, Brian, I want to ask you, uh, based on your research and your experience, what are the areas where the United States and China are competing in a commercial space with respect to commercially launched satellites and other space technologies that have a commercial application? Well, so as Todd mentioned, you know there there is this commercial space boom going on that is primarily centered in the U.S. but does exist internationally. Um, at the moment, China's space efforts are mostly governmental, but in the last few years, they have signaled a strong interest in developing their own commercial space sector, largely because they see the benefits that that are, that may accrue from that in terms of uh, innovation and 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 other you know economic benefits. Uh, but there's a lot of challenges to do so. One is you know they still face significant number of sanctions from the U.S. Uh, and from some of U.S. allies. Uh, particular things like space launch. Um, you know, if you're a U.S. company, you can't just put your satellite on a, on a Chinese uh, rocket and launch into space. So there, so China is you know fire, firewalled off from a big part of the commercial launch market, uh, and and that is posing challenges to them as they try to develop their own domestic uh, commercial sector. Um, but nonetheless, they they are definitely working on it. There's been a couple of the most recent big international space conferences. Uh, there have been Chinese companies that have been promoting launch services. They're promoting uh, imagery, high-resolution imagery services. Uh, and they've even been talking about to other countries, hey, we can help you build your satellites for large constellations and do other things. And they're, they're actually going after some of the markets the U.S. is not. So a lot of the emerging developing world that the U.S. has sort of ignored from a space cooperation and, and partnership perspective that is a big part of what China is targeting as the audience for what they're trying to sell and develop. You know, there's just to kind of underscore the um, the you know growing international uh, focus of the space market. 
Uh, on Monday, October 9th, there were three launches in the same day. SpaceX, uh, you know, a new start company here in the U.S., launched uh, a batch of Iridium satellites. So they're small satellites used for communications, commercial mission. Uh, and then China launched a Venezuelan satellite. And then Japan launched its last QZSS, uh, GPS augmentation satellite, all in one day. Uh, and, you know, it's just, I think it's a, a good example of how this you know, the space domain has really fundamentally changed, and it's so international and so intertwined. You mentioned the international nature of this, and you mentioned the the recent uh, Japanese launch on uh, Monday, October 9th. One of the areas I want to turn to is how these technologies have impacted other uh, countries in the Asia Pacific. Uh, you mentioned Japan. Maybe uh, we'd hear a little bit more about that, but also uh, India, India um, and what they're up to, and also our, our South Korean allies, the ROK, uh, what types of programs are in place for uh, their developing their space technology and capabilities, and uh, to what extent should we be paying attention to that? Yeah, so I, I think space has definitely become a significant element of the, the regional security and political dynamics in the Asia-Pacific. Um, Japan, in the last few years, has, made, has changed their constitution to allow them to do military activities in space, historically they were limited to peaceful uses defined as, as non-military. But they've made this change because they see uh, uh, national security military space as a big part of missile defense. And, and they're uh, dealing with their security challenges with North Korea as well as with China uh, and their relationship with the U.S. Uh, so, so that has caused a very significant change in Japan. And they're now focusing quite a bit more on national security space with, with surveillance, with missile defense, and with space situation awareness. Um, on the Korea side, something very similar. Uh, North, uh, sorry, South Korea, the last few years, has launched a military uh, space surveillance situation awareness center that is focused on you know, uh, broader uh, awareness of what's going on in space. And that is linked to their concerns about North Korea um, and, and North Korean satellites and ballistic missile programs. Uh, and then the other factor in the neighborhood is India. Um, it's fascinating. I, I talk to people, in the, you talk to space people in India, and they're very much focused on China. And they see that as uh, China's space program as providing a lot of regional power and influence. And so the Indians are very much focused on that. Um, you talk towards the Chinese, and they're very much focused on America as kind of the, 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 what they're chasing as far as the leader. Uh, and so there's an interesting triangle there between those three countries. Um, India historically has had a purely civil space program in that it was only for uh, socioeconomic benefits. But in the, since the 2007 Chinese ASAT test, they have launched their own military national security uh, space program. Uh, they're developing military satellites. Uh, much in the same way Japan has kind of shifted a little bit there, uh, India is, is the same. Um, and India is also working on prestige programs, exploration, human spaceflight. Uh, so space is definitely part of those regional dynamics in terms of the, the competition between the different countries. You mentioned, uh, I think you called them prestige programs and the more uh, sexy exploration topics. Uh, Hollywood makes it seem like collaboration between uh, our various frenemies happens on a regular basis, uh, whether you're talking about uh, collaboration between the United States and China as featured in The Martian, uh, with India or Russia or with, with Japan. How often do, in a you know, in the real world, does this type of cooperation take place? Obviously, we have the International Space Station still operating. Uh, what degree of collaboration is there between the United States and the various countries of the Indo-Pacific? 
Well, I can start and talk about Russia for a second. So, you know, we've had uh, civil space cooperation with Russia and the Soviet Union before them, going back decades, really to the beginning of the space age. Even in the 1960s, we were doing um, low-level things, you know, sharing data uh, all the way up through the Soyuz test project, where we actually, you know, tested docking uh, in space uh, up to the Mir space station, where, um, you know, we've took astronauts up to the Mir space station and then the International Space Station from the very beginning um, you know we've partnered with the Russians on that and they've been you know really the key partner in that along with our European allies and Japan and a few others as well uh, and so even you know in the past few years since 2014 when our relationship with Russia has deteriorated remarkably uh, our partnership on the ISS has really not been phased. Uh, there was a brief threat uh, by the deputy <laughs> uh, prime minister in Russia. Uh, I think he tweeted something about, you know, maybe we can get our, maybe the U.S. can get its astronauts to the space station on a trampoline. Uh, but no action was ever taken. Uh, and, and so that partnership continues to today. And, you know, we're still buying uh, Russian rocket engines to use on our Atlas V launch vehicle to put our military satellites in orbit. Uh, we're dependent on them. They're dependent on us. Uh, and, and that relationship, at least, has survived all of the other geopolitical tensions that have gone on for the past several decades. Uh, yeah. So to add on to that, um, historically, the U.S. has not had a lot of space cooperation with India. That was mainly a, a, a political choice because of, of their nuclear program and some nonproliferation issues. But that ended under, the, under Bush 43. Uh, when there was kind of a rapprochement with India on this, and, and there are now some discussions about potentially partnering them in the future. Um, on China, uh, you know, it, it, there there is not a lot of or any kind of space cooperation between the U.S. and China. That is mainly due to U.S. domestic politics. Um, one of the big concerns there is technology transfer. Uh, in the early 90s, back when there were U.S. commercial satellites launching and Chinese launch vehicles, there was some technology transfer that happened uh, that re that reportedly improved China's ballistic missile capabilities, and ever since uh, there have been very strong export controls in place that kind of limited that. Um, on the other side, uh, NASA is currently prohibited from any bilateral cooperation with China without express permission from Congress, and that actually stems from a, a congressman who uh, was very concerned about human rights in China, and felt that space cooperation should be a reward given after China, you know, changes its approach to human rights. Um, and so that restriction is still in place, which makes it very difficult for the U.S. to do bilateral civil space cooperation. Looking to the future, uh, you know, the, the, the revitalized uh, National Space Council under Vice President Pence uh, recently announced they're going to look, look to go back to the moon. I think if they do that, that's going to have to be under international partnership and with commercial partnership. Um, and that's something that China's talked about in many other countries. So I think that would have to be part of the conversation of how much of an international endeavor that is, what role there are for other countries, including China. Um, so who knows if we'll be able to overcome a lot of the domestic politics, but I think there's at least some hope there. Gentlemen, thank you so much for, for joining us, and I really appreciate your time. That's our show. Thanks to Todd Harrison and Zach Cooper for sharing their findings, and a very special thanks to Brian Whedon for taking the time to share his insights and analysis. 
The audio for this podcast was edited by Ribka Gimelingsari. The podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit cogitasia.com and csis.org. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on csis.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for updated maps on maritime claims in Asia. And check out our latest Reconnecting Asia feature on the competing visions for connecting Eurasia. Also, be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast on China-Myanmar ties. I'm Will Coulson. Thanks for listening.